Welcome. You are listening to a special episode of TLR's podcast. In this series, we are talking to the reviewers who brought you TLR's 55 most reread books. Each episode breaks down the list into specific favorites for that reviewer. You can find more reviews and best of lists on thelesbianreview.com. Today I'm talking about two fomances that I have reread multiple times. The character work is amazing in both books. The story arc is captivating, but mostly I'm driven by the relationship between the two characters and how the fomance turns into a romance. The subtleties and delicate balance that the authors managed to capture in these two books are impressive, to say the least. The first book is Breaking Character by Lee Winter. Published by Ilva Publishing, there's an audiobook published by Tentor Audio and narrated by Angela Daw. I'm going to read the synopsis. Life has become a farcical mess for icy British A-lister Elizabeth Thornton. America's most hated villain stars in a top-rated TV medical drama that she hates. Now she's been romantically linked to her perky new co-star, Summer, due to the young woman's clumsiness. As a closeted actress, that's the last thing Elizabeth needs. If she could get her dream movie role, life would be so much better. The only problem is that the eccentric French filmmaker offering it insists on meeting her new girlfriend, Summer, first. Summer Hayes is devastated when her co-star shuns her for accidentally sparking rumours that they're lovers. Now, the so-called British bitch has the audacity to ask Summer to pretend to be her girlfriend to get her a role. Elizabeth doesn't even like Summer. Oh, how she'd love to tell her no. And Summer definitely would if it wasn't for the fact that she's maybe a tiny bit in love with the impossible woman. This book contains Summer, who's probably one of my favourite lesbian fiction characters ever. She grew up a child star, her mother and father both work in the film industry, and yet she is down to earth and completely sweet, adorable and a real girl next door. This is an age gap, opposites tracked romance with an American leading lady and a British leading lady. It is a gorgeously written book. It's also set in Hollywood, which is always a plus. You want to see the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Winter did an excellent job of creating memorable characters, interesting experiences, and a story that you're not likely to read again. And boy, when they are on the film set and filming, that is some great work by Lee Winter. My next book is In Development by Rachel Spangler. It's a funny thing, I've been wanting to talk about these two books next to each other for a while. On the surface, it seems like such similar books. They're fomances, they're set in the high drama world of celebrities. One has got a kind of a girl next door and the other one's a more aloof character. And yet, they're both so uniquely different and so well written. And the characters are not really comparable. But if you like the one, you're definitely going to like the other. So In Development by Rachel Spangler was published by Brisk Press. There is an audiobook created by Rachel Spangler, narrated by Anne Etter. I'm going to read the synopsis. From a young age, Kobe Galloway made a career of playing the girl next door on the silver screen. Only she's not a teenager anymore. Ready to challenge herself artistically and earn the part she's always dreamed of, she's forced to face the realisation that in order to win the roles afforded to edgier actresses, She must first have to audition by playing someone edgier in her day-to-day life. Pop star Lila Wilder built a multimedia empire by always having her finger on the pulse of what's hot. 
However, as she struggles to produce her next smash hit record, she's finding it hard to keep her name in the public eye, and a string of tumultuous relationships with Hollywood boy toys no longer captivates anyone's attention. Both women tentatively agree to a headline-grabbing fomance with two simple rules. Always stick to the script, and never forget that on stage, public perception, nothing is real. Can two women find love in the world of carefully crafted illusions, or will a successful charade mean the potential for something more gets left on the cutting room floor? This one features a musician and an actress, definitely a thawing the ice queen kind of moment, with a girl-next-door Hollywood sweetheart. Gorgeously written. Intensely well done. Brilliant chemistry between the main characters, but also a real push and pull for internal reasons, especially on Lila's side. Lila has to be one of the most in-depth ice queens. And to finish off the season, I have a special treat. Rachel Spangler has given me permission to use the first chapter of the audiobook at the end of this podcast to give you a taste of the actual story. Also, Tantor Audio has given me permission to use the first chapter of Breaking Character. So stay tuned so that you can listen to both. Tantor Audio, a division of recorded books, presents Breaking Character by Lee Winter. Narrated by Angela Daw. Chapter 1 Joey Carter ran with bruising pace to the main exit doors of Martina Hope Memorial Hospital and flung herself into chaos. Rain was cascading down, far colder than it had a right to be for L.A. Dodging a rolling crash cart followed by a gurney, she juggled the precious cargo in her arms. Dr. Carter! Someone shouted. She didn't react at first. Carter, the person tried again. Joey Carter? She spun toward the voice. Yes? Water pelted her face, splashing into her eyes as she angled toward the light and the figure silhouetted within it. She blinked away the rain. Her blonde ponytail felt like a sodden lump and water had caught inside her collar. Her hands were too full to adjust her shirt. A tall, handsome man with pinched features wearing a white coat shouted to her over the roar of the rain, his finger pointing wildly behind him. Get those blood packs to Dr. Mendez ASAP. He needs at least three units. Who? She gave him an uncertain look. Oh, crap, that's right. It's your first week, isn't it? Without waiting, he added, You know the chief? Her eyes widened at mention of the notorious Iris Hunt. She swallowed and gave a nervous nod. Okay, she's over there in front of that crashed ambulance. Dr. Mendez is inside, stabilizing a trapped patient with a severed femoral artery. The man's lost a lot of blood. He pointed at her bundle. So get that to him fast. Joey flew off again, leaping over a puddle as she reached the impossible scene. Three mangled ambulances had somehow collided. She spied the hospital's chief of surgery immediately. Dr. Hunt was on her knees under the glare of lights, compressing a wound on the man's stomach. Her beautiful brown hair, now soaked, fell just over a starched white collar. Her features, narrow and aloof, seemed even more distant in the bleakness of night. Hunt's intense grey eyes were fixed on her patient. Stay with me, she was saying in a commanding voice. Joey ran in front of the pair, clutching her precious pile of O-neg blood packs. Her left foot hit a piece of gaffer tape on the ground. She fumbled, and her cargo bounced from her hands. Plastic blood packs cartwheeled away, skidding in every direction. With a gasp, 
Joey turned, scrabbling to catch at least a few. As she twisted, her heel stomped hard on one pack. A gruesome arc of red shot up in a shower that exploded all over Hunt's face and chest. Joey let out a pained moan. Oh, shit. Could it get any worse? Shit, shit, shit. Hunt's disbelieving gaze dropped to her own red-spattered chest, then shifted to outrage as she glared at Joey. Just wonderful, she growled. Oh, God, S sorry, I... She stopped, taking in the other woman's warning look. Hunt gave her the most minute of head shakes, and she was still applying compression to her patient. Joey's eyes flew wide at the realization of what that meant. Chief Hunt, I'm so sorry, the blood packs were... It's the rain, they slipped. Obviously, she snarled. Get it together, there's no room for clumsiness in this job. Hunt pressed a bit harder on the man's wound, causing him to groan. What are you standing around for? Get that blood to Dr. Mendez immediately. Yeah, of, of course. Joey scooped up the remaining blood packs as fast as she could. It seemed to take far too long. Red goop was dripping from Hunt's coat and hair and onto her patient. The condescension was dripping along with it when she added, Sometime before Mendez's patient dies... Joey bolted off, around the rear of the crumpled ambulance, disappearing from camera view. Cut! The fire hoses raining on them stopped, and the set broke into laughs. The steady cam operator who'd been tracking her was almost on his knees, wheezing with laughter. Jeez, had everyone been holding that back? Summer Hayes was pretty sure she was feeling about the same degree of humiliation as her character, Joey Carter, a plucky second-year resident on the TV medical drama Choosing Hope. She was only supposed to drop the fake blood packs, not coat the imposing hospital chief in them. Stepping nervously back into view of the set, Summer was glad for the darkness that covered the blush creeping up her face. The booming laugh of director Bob Ravitz filled the air, and normally a surlier man had never existed. Christ, Elizabeth Thornton, a.k.a. Chief Hunt, muttered as she made to rise from her bloodied puddle. She darted a cold look at Summer. Was there any part of my skin you missed? She glanced around and lifted her voice. Can I have a towel, please? Her tone turned dry. Or a fire hose? The extra sat up. Um, hey, me too? He waved at his gory shirt. I'm so sorry. Summer inched forward. An assistant ran toward them, holding a thick towel, but before Elizabeth could grab it, the director waved her back down. Don't move. That earned him a dark glower. Sorry, Miss Thornton, but continuity on blood spatters is a bitch. We'll need to do close-ups right now or nothing will match, so let's all get it right the first time. He looked at his director of photography. Steve, set up. Let's get this blocked now. But Elizabeth waved at herself. We're keeping this. It wasn't scripted. I looked ridiculous. Summer was firmly of the view there was no way Elizabeth Thornton could ever look anything less than perfectly put together. The comment earned her a long look from Ravitz. Yes, we're keeping it. It gives Iris Hunt more reason to hate the new girl, which was in the script anyway. He glanced at Summer and smiled. And the new girl will want Attila the Hunt all up in her face. Nothing makes fans love someone more than when a villain turns on them. Win-win, right? He snapped his fingers at his second assistant and muttered some technical notes. Elizabeth looked murderous. 
and Summer wondered what that was about. Maybe she hated the nickname? What about me? The extra asked. Do I just lie here? Rabbits ignored him. Summer glanced at the man. He was soaked to the skin, his shirt ripped open. His chest was red from where Chief Hunt had been applying compression. He shivered. Elizabeth arched an eyebrow. If I have to bleed all over you, you have to lie there and take it. Sorry. The tiniest edges of her lips quirked up before she hissed to a lurking assistant director. How about a hot water bottle for a drowned rat, hmm? The AD shrugged and disappeared. Summer wasn't sure if that meant yes or fat chance. The extra's gaze was entirely on Summer. He gave her a sheepish grin. I guess this is showbiz, huh? Yeah, Summer murmured as the lighting techs moved in closer to surround them, but her focus remained on the austere star of choosing hope. This was the woman dubbed as difficult by the industry? Elizabeth Thornton was positively sedate compared with some of the asshole personalities Summer had worked with, and the woman actually seemed to care about the well-being of an extra, even if the man himself hadn't noticed. She glanced around. They were at the VA West Los Angeles Medical Center, using its glass and steel exterior to double as Martina Hope Memorial's facade. Interior shots were done in the studio five miles away. It was a little weird out here at this time of night devoid of the usual traffic and filled with an acre of cast and crew trailers. The wind picked up, knocking over a lighting stand. Ravitz cursed. Would someone secure that before it fucking costs us an insurance claim? The continuity woman, Jill, Jan, began taking photos of Elizabeth's spattered face and shirt before moving to the extra. Then the first few drops of rain hit. The real stuff, not the hoses. Fuck, one of the lighting techs grumbled. Do you think we'll be stuck here till midnight again? Elizabeth slid her gaze to Summer, saying absolutely nothing as she stared. It was an accident, Summer pleaded. It was just what the scene needed to really pop. Ravitz turned and gave her an approving smile that bordered on something else. You can't script something like this. We got real lucky. Oh, yes, Elizabeth murmured. That's the word I was searching for. She smiled blandly, and Ravitz nodded, grunted, and turned away. Summer wondered at the man's missing sarcasm detector. The extra sneezed. Shit, I'm frozen. I'm so sorry, Summer whispered to him, and by extension, the woman still kneeling over him in the dirt. Elizabeth's knees had to be killing her. Rafe Benson, who played the rakishly handsome Dr. Mendez, sauntered over with a charming smile, looking clean, warm, and very dry under a large black umbrella. Lucky bastard. He sized up the scene with a smirk, then rocked on his heels, barely containing a laugh as he looked at Summer. Welcome to TV, kid. Summer gritted her teeth into something approaching a smile, not bothering to correct him. It was no use. At 28, she was only a few years his junior, but she'd always looked much younger than her age. It had kept her in teenage roles for far too long and led to frequent condescension from colleagues. At least Joey Carter, age 23, was an adult role for once. Out of the corner of her eye, she could see Elizabeth staring at her, and Summer tried very hard not to look at the only person she really wanted to like her on this whole damned show. Elizabeth Thornton's twisted parody of a smile was not friendly in the least.
I mean it, Elizabeth hissed down the phone. She stalked around her trailer, feeling better for the warm shower, a thin blue robe clinging to her body. Four hours under hoses, not to mention fake blood running into my eyes, thanks to some empty-headed newbie screwing up her scene. If I have to do one more season of this mind-numbing drivel, I'll implode. Despite representing some of the leading lights in Tinseltown, Rachel Cho wasn't particularly good at diplomacy, but she was usually good at saying what Elizabeth needed to hear. Elizabeth waited impatiently. Darling, I'm sure you weren't hating on your show quite so much when they turned you into one of the highest paid women on TV last season, and that drivel got you the pretty mansion you adore so much. Plus, you went from an unemployed anonymous Brit to a star whose name is on everyone's lips. Elizabeth glowered. As the most hated villain in America, and we both know how that came about. So now they've turned me into the star of Carrie, so Ravitz and that ego-stunted showrunner can get their kicks at seeing me humiliated. That's not okay, Rachel. I thought you said it was an accident. Yes, but they kept it, as if they'd missed the chance of cutting me down to size, making me look like a bedraggled stray. The worst thing is they're still spreading those rumors that I'm the difficult one. You know why. That's how this place works. You don't play ball, they remind you who's boss. Oh, I know. So I've had it. Find me something else. Something serious. Find something to stretch me in hiatus, or I'll walk off this putrid petri dish right now, and I don't care how much we have to pay to get me out of my contract. There was a soft sigh. You can't walk, Bess, or they'll spin it as proof that you really are the British bitch, and then see how much work you get around here. Look, just keep reminding yourself there's only one season left. Now, I've been talking to Delvine about some offers that have come up, and we agree there's one that seems right for you, and it fits with your schedule. That sparked Elizabeth's interest. Her manager, Delvine Rothery, was one of the best at taking careers from middling to spectacular. I'm listening. She grabbed a towel off the back of the chair and ran it through her hair again, as if it might wipe from her brain that creepy sensation of blood trickling down her face. Ever heard of Jean-Claude Badour? That weird French director. Not weird, darling, creative. Artsy. After his last Palme d'Or, he decided he's done Europe now and wants to dip his toe into Hollywood. He apparently has a remarkable script, according to the buzz. It's the hottest property in town. Everyone wants in. He won a Palme d'Or. Wait, more than one? Elizabeth couldn't picture it, but then she'd only seen one of his shorts. Something oddball about butterflies. He won Cannes' top prize for Complot les Clunes, When Clowns Cry. Cho paused. I highly recommend you take this one. It's going to elevate you far beyond TV. And look, you should know he's asked for you specifically to star. He must want you very badly since he's lined up filming for your hiatus. A sliver of distaste shot through Elizabeth. Me? Please tell me he's not a fan of choosing hope. Is that why he wants me? Don't be so cynical. He's French, not American. Of course he hates hope. His actual quote was that you need freeing from rancid dribble. Elizabeth smiled. Well, he had some taste then. He followed your theater days in London. He adored Shakespeare's women as well as Lucifer's curse and the righteous Miss Hamilton. Elizabeth stared at her phone. Still there? Or are you in shock that someone appreciates you for your acting instead of your sizzling chemistry with Rafe? Sizzling, more like manufactured. It was still a sore point what had happened with her character. More petty revenge from the showrunner. Hilarious, she growled. Fine, 
I'll watch his sad little clown flick and let you know. When can I see the script? Soon. I've asked. It's not quite ready yet. Filming starts in two months. It's about a reclusive writer in a mountain shack in the middle of nowhere who gets eight visitors. Eight little pieces, it's called. I'm sure there's some beautiful artistic metaphor involved. Anyway, he wants to do lunch with you and Delvine soon to hammer out the details. I haven't said yes yet. Rachel laughed as though it was a foregone conclusion. She probably wasn't wrong. Elizabeth said her goodbyes and hung up, feeling optimistic. Even so, she reminded herself, Badur had done a short film about sentient butterflies. She glanced at her sodden, stained Chief Hunt outfit where it hung on a rail. The reminder of what had transpired this evening, for hours, soured her mood. Anything she signed on for outside of this show had to be an improvement on the dreck they'd been dishing up in recent seasons. Three ambulances all crashed into each other, right outside the hospital's entrance? That made so much sense. Was she the only one who noticed this nonsense? A knock sounded on her trailer door. Yes! Tension flooded back into her shoulders. Right about now was when the director would have reviewed the rushes and decided they needed reshoots. She wrenched open the door, pitying the minion with the job of passing along that news to the cast. Um... Hi? A twenty-something woman with damp blonde hair stood before her. She wore jeans, a t-shirt, and a strained look. It's Summer. Summer Hayes? Was she asking or telling? Elizabeth peered at the young woman, waiting for something more. There was nothing forthcoming. Her eye fell to the hands clutching a steaming paper cup. The girl gazed at her with wide, innocent regretful eyes. Recognition dawned. She did look slightly different with her hair out of its drenched ponytail. We meet again. Elizabeth arched her brow. Here to douse me again, round two. You know, usually it's the newbie who gets hazed, not the veteran. That came out a little snippier than she'd intended. It was hardly this girl's fault how ageist this town could be. Thirty-seven years old, and she was starting to feel the subtle shifts in attitude. It was grating on her. Back home, she'd be seen as just entering her prime. Here, it felt like they were almost ready to hand her her hat. No, you're safe this time, Summer said with a bright grin. May I come in? I bear gifts and an apology. She waggled the cup. I don't drink coffee, much less the American swill they serve on this set, so if that's all... She began shutting the door in Summer's face, too tired to go through the charade of civility. Actually, it's, um, tea. From England, I think you might like it. Elizabeth frowned. You can't get what I like here. Oh, it's possible. Summer smiled, wide and radiant. Elizabeth pursed her lips and held out a hand for the cup, willing to test Summer's claim out of curiosity if nothing else. Their fingers brushed as the cup exchanged custody, and Summer snatched her hand back as if bitten. Great. Was her reputation so awful that new cast members believed she was Attila the Hunt off-screen, too? Then the tea's heavenly scent reached her nose. Oh, there was no faking this aroma. It was utterly sinful. This wasn't some random English tea the girl had plucked from the International Isle of Target— it was exactly Elizabeth's brand and variety, an organic guayusa cacao blend with hints of mint and cinnamon and several other sweet-smelling exotic spices. 
It was a special mix from the small tea and art cafe around the corner from Cambridge University. Only Blackie's Tea House made and sold this blend. How on earth was it here? Or maybe her nose was deceiving her? She drew the cup to her lips, paused, and then sipped. Her taste buds exploded. The wash of flavors flowed through the perfectly hot tea, none of that lukewarm, overly sweet milk water the Americans rightly sneered at. She could have wept at the rush that filled her. Forcing herself to lower the intoxicating drink, Elizabeth looked at her expectant colleague in astonishment. It had been years since she'd been home to taste this. The thought that she could have it here somehow, on hand, was overwhelming. What is this? Where did you get it? I need the name of your local supplier. The woman tilted her head back and laughed. You make me sound like a crack dealer. Elizabeth's fingers tightened on the container, and she sipped again, which turned into a richly satisfying gulp. Will you tell me? She arranged her features to encouraging. Since this is your big apology? She gave a smile then, a genuine one she rarely bestowed on strangers, but desperate times called for desperate measures. It had anything but the desired effect. Summer's gaze dropped to her feet as red crept up her neck and ears. How odd. And that didn't seem like fear. More like self-consciousness? Summer looked up from under her lashes. Um, my family lived in England for a few years. I found this odd little cafe one day, part art gallery, part tea house, and uh, this was its signature blend. I loved it. Now I have my friends in London send it to me. She shrugged. I thought the odds were good you might like a taste of tea from home. Seems I was right. Elizabeth blinked. It had never occurred to her to get her friends to supply her tea. Even now it seemed rude to impose, a national crime for the English, she noted ruefully. After draining the cup with one last gratified sigh, Elizabeth tossed it in the trash. Well, apology accepted. She still felt out of sorts, and the beginning of a tiredness headache was threatening the edges of her temples. The young woman had given her a thoughtful gift and seemed genuine enough. Her eye fell to Summer's generous chest, honeyed L.A. tan and girlish, ever-widening smile. Jesus, she might be nice enough, but it was also clear exactly why she was hired. Ravitz had made no secret of it every time his eyes roamed over her. Elizabeth's mouth hardened. It might not be Summer Hayes's fault, but she was everything that was wrong with this show and Hollywood as a whole. Style over substance, looks over depth, this smiling, bouncy, central-casting, girl-next-door stereotype was the least suitable person to be on Choosing Hope, given its original mission statement. Yet here she stood, shallowness in human form. Well, thank you for the gift, Elizabeth said, her voice a few degrees cooler. But if you wouldn't mind... She looked pointedly at the doorway Summer was still standing in. I haven't had a chance to get dressed since tonight's blood-spattered debacle. Summer wilted. S sorry she said again. Elizabeth had a fierce urge to roll her eyes. The girl apparently had a limited vocabulary, too. She left, much as she'd arrived, with a youthful energy and big, soulful eyes. Summer threw down her bag when she arrived home, exhausted and miserable. It was close to midnight. 
Everyone on set had been bitching about the delays, and by the time she'd apologized to the gaffer and all the grips, she'd decided to just suck it up and accept that she'd have to work extra hard to get back into people's good graces. Not a very auspicious start to her time on choosing hope. She kicked off her boots and collapsed on the sofa. Staring at the walls of her Silver Lake bungalow seemed a much more manageable pastime than figuring her way to the shower, so she let her gaze slide over her framed black-and-white photos of L.A.'s most architecturally interesting streets. She'd taken them all herself, and loved nothing more than finding some undiscovered street with quirky-looking homes from yesteryear. Footsteps approached. A flash of black hair appeared in her line of sight, followed by the light brown face and penetrating gaze of Chloe Martin, a towering New Zealand actress she'd met 18 months ago at a charity event where they'd immediately clicked. Summer loved Chloe's unassuming nature and lack of pretension. She had a wide, toothy grin and a passion for basketball. Chloe was in her foot-rot flats, cartoon dog pajama bottoms and a tank top. Hey, Smiley, wondered when you'd crawl in. Dying to know how your first week of work panned out. She sat on the wooden coffee table opposite. Summer stared up at the ceiling and licked her lips. Okay, let's see. Uh, the table read was fine. Everyone seemed friendly, except Elizabeth Thornton, who didn't look up at me once, so it's no wonder she didn't recognize me later. Okay, then what? Why do you look like a constipated possum? Today we shot this really intense trauma scene. Three ambulances crashed in the hospital parking lot. Three. Choice, eh? Chloe cackled. It's out there as hell. Summer shook her head at her friend's kiwiisms. I don't think they care if it's stupid. The show keeps trying to top itself on being twisty. Good thing, then. Chloe lowered herself to the floor, lying flat on a rug. She began bending her knees up and down and flapping her arms. Dead cockroaches, she called them. Something to keep an old sports injury in check. Right, then what? Chloe asked between whooshing breaths. Did you have to fall into some stud muffin's lap or something? Because that show's getting crazy with all the bed hopping. Way worse. Summer screwed her eyes shut. I was supposed to run past an emergency scene, drop a bunch of blood bags, and get my ear chewed off by Chief Hunt. But? But I stepped on one, and it exploded and shot fake blood all up into Thornton's face. I don't mean a little either, it freaking coated her. It was in her hair, eyes, down her collar. It was so bad. Holy fuck. I know. Summer opened her eyes and groaned. Chloe burst out laughing. Oh, mate, she's so scary. That's, um, well, shit. Hey, I'm trying for denial here. She frowned. By the way, she's not that bad. She can't be. I screwed up so much, and she was snide but hardly ripped my head off. Uh-huh, except my agents heard she's a bitch on wheels. Summer decided not to argue, but she wasn't buying it. Someone as bad as Elizabeth was rumored to be would have skinned her alive. Hell of a first impression, hey? Chloe added. You must like her, though, the way you defend her. Well, how can I not? She's brilliant. Even if she doesn't seem too impressed with the show, when they call action, she's on. She gives it everything. Old school pro, I respect that. Me too. Summer smiled. Chloe stopped her dead cockroaches. So, while well, you were busy provoking your new co-star... I have news. Summer sat up. Ooh, your audition? Yep, got a call back on the shampoo ad. Only problem is it's being shot out of whoop-whoop somewhere. Pays a treat, but... But what? 
but nothing. I got the job. She gave the thumbs up. Oh, right, another Kiwiism. Summer leaned over and gave her a side-on hug. Awesome. Thanks. I might even be able to make rent this month. She winked. But can you tell your mum I won't be here for Sunday lunch? Sure. Summer almost rolled her eyes. Come rain or shine, even when Summer was away, her mother always visited for a family lunch on Sundays. Okay, so you're down for a basketball training sesh tomorrow? Chloe asked. You're by far our most popular stats keeper, given you're our only one. Summer smiled. She was often roped into helping Chloe's team on her rare days off work, not helping in a throwing-the-ball-while-staying-upright sense, of course. As tonight had proven yet again, Summer had exactly two left feet. Can't. I have to help this sweet, crazy woman. Ah, gotcha. Doing some hippie Lola thing with your mum. She snorted. Suggesting that Sky Storm, her mother's actual name, would be doing some hippie la-la thing was like suggesting cow's mood. When Skye wasn't exploring her spiritual side, blessing her crystals, or demonstrating sewing techniques in the vlogs Summer helped her make, she was creating stunning costumes for movies. She might be eccentric, but she was also extraordinary, which explained the respect that tinged Chloe's voice. Yep, I'm producing Mom's next vlog. Natural tie-dyeing, heavenly homemade dyes. Should be fun, but messy. That is your forte, right? Blood baths and dye baths. Summer winced at the reminder. Chloe prodded her in the ribs. Hey, I just remembered. There's a new girl on the team. Really cute. Dying to meet you. She loves your TV stuff, especially teen spy camp. Burying her face under a cushion, Summer said, Another 20-year-old groupie. Awesome. A frightening thought struck. At least tell me this one's actually in her 20s? Just barely. Chloe gave an evil laugh. You do attract the young ones. Shit, I can't help how young I look. Chloe just laughed harder. Stop bitching, Smiley. You'll be working in Hollywood way longer than everyone else. I mean, right now you are easily pulling off a role five years younger than you actually are. That's not as good as it sounds. Rafe Benson called me kid. I get that all the time. Well, not from Thornton. She didn't call me any name at all. Not even mine. Because you did to her. Chloe chuckled. And that's a good thing, remember. They say she had some extra fired for looking her directly in the eyes. They say a lot of things. Doesn't make them true. It's so easy to tear people down. But at the end of the day, they'll still be jealous and she'll still have talent. She closed her eyes, losing herself in the memory. When I was 15, my parents were working on this sci-fi trilogy in London. I'd sneak away from my tutor, catch the tube, and see the matinees in the West End. The first play I ever saw was Elizabeth's one-woman Shakespeare show. I saw it a dozen times before Dad finally noticed how much money I'd been spending. You saw Thornton in London? Chloe asked quietly. I heard she was amazing back in the day. Amazing. That was one word for it. On a small London stage, Elizabeth Thornton had padded out barefoot in a formless, mid-length white sheath, then sat on a wooden stool. It was the only thing on the stage. She was in her mid-twenties back then, but her bearing was tall, confident, and regal. With the tone of her voice, the angling of her expressive, classically beautiful face, subtle shifts of the spotlight, highlighting her high cheekbones and full, curving lips... She became someone else. 
There were no costume changes, no music, no props. Elizabeth was as naked as an actress could be while still covered. Her voice was clear, strong, precise, as she twisted and curled herself into Beatrice, Desdemona, Juliet, Cordelia, Lady Macbeth, and more. Her anguish as she washed invisible blood from her hands was chilling. She looked up, once, just to the left of her audience, and it seemed to Summer that their eyes met. Summer's breath caught and held as she soaked in the details. Ivory skin, paler under the white spotlight, brown hair pulled back from her face and turned black by the contrasting shadows. Her heart bellowed in her ears as her gaze swallowed and pulled apart and reconstructed the elegant woman on stage, making sense of her, committing her to memory. Will my hands never be clean? Lady Macbeth's eyes pleaded. Her voice, commanding and desperate, seemed both whisper and shout. Summer's heart clenched at the aching tone. Her hands balled into fists. Elizabeth Thornton was the most beautiful human she'd ever seen, then or since. Yes, she was amazing. Summer opened her eyes. Seeing her act made me fall in love with acting. So this is a wicked coincidence you ending up on her show. True. My sister's mainly excited I'm a series regular again, and Autumn sees it as vitally important for my career to finally play an adult. But for me, getting to work with the best actress I've ever seen really added to the allure. Oh, hon, be careful. You'll get your heart broken. Chloe shook her head slowly. There is nothing worse than meeting your idol. Sure there is. Summer studied her fingers and pulled a miserable face. Making them think you're an idiot. That's way worse. Ah, uh, right. Sympathy edged Chloe's eyes. Well, as bad as you feel right now, just remember it's beautiful that you once hit a hero who showed you something you now care about so deeply. Sounds like an incredible experience. I envy you that. It was. It was a gift. A memory she'd never swap for anything. She could still see the elegant tilt of the head. The eyes, profound and emotional, staring right at her. Into her. If only Summer hadn't gone and ruined it all. In Development by Rachel Spangler Narrated by Anne Etter I read that the traditional symbols of the twelfth anniversary are silk and linen to represent luxury and comfort. Susie, you have given me both in exactly the right portions to help me thrive. So, of course, number twelve, is all your fault. Chapter 1 The office of Levy and Levy was a whir of human energy vibrating off glass and steel. Everywhere phones rang or buzzed, and there wasn't a surface that didn't glisten or gleam. All the bustle and brightness made Colby Galloway feel even more out of place than she had outside in Times Square. The lights there were brighter, and the noises louder, but at least she'd blended into the crowd. As soon as the elevator doors had opened on the forty-second floor, every eye trained on her. Well, maybe not her so much as her clothes or her hair, or perhaps the way she slouched and shuffled up to the desk. 
Then again, maybe her demeanor made her stand out more than her low-slung jeans and plain cream waffle-weave shirt. She didn't act like she owned the place, unlike every other sleek, suit-clad person bustling back and forth, talking on a myriad of devices, phones, tablets, Bluetooth earpieces. One guy even seemed to be chatting with his watch. She glanced down at the thick script in her hands and considered trying to have a conversation with it. Instead, she chose the old-fashioned approach and smiled at the receptionist with a severe updo. Hi. Yes? The woman asked, drumming her jet-black fingernails on her frosted glass desk. I'm Stan's 1130 appointment. The receptionist pursed her lips in a way that suggested she highly doubted the truth of the statement, but clicked open a document on her iPad. Mr. Levy has an 11.30 appointment with... Her voice trailed off, and she regarded Kobe with a little more interest. Gray eyes flicked over her attire and settled on her face, clearly searching for something to tip the scales of recognition. Kobe decided to make it easier on them both. So she shook her shoulder-length brunette hair from her face, then fluttered her eyelashes a little. The receptionist's entire demeanor changed. She leaned forward in her chair, showing a startling amount of cleavage, her cheeks flushing pink and her lips curving upward. Oh, honey, you're much taller than you look in all the movies. It's the angles they shoot from, she said frankly. Jeremy doesn't like anyone to know how short he is. Her eyebrows shot up. How short is he? Kobe smiled. Five-seven on a good day. When I'm barefoot, I look him in the eye. And is everything else about him? She glanced around like she knew she shouldn't ask, but couldn't pass up the chance. Proportional? Kobe shrugged. I wouldn't know. He uses a body double for love scenes. The secretary's mouth dropped, and Kobe felt the tiniest bit of guilt. She didn't care a whit about protecting Jeremy's fragile ego, but she didn't want to do anything that might serve as tabloid fodder. She worked hard to protect her own life. She wouldn't want to carelessly subject someone else to that kind of scrutiny, whether she particularly enjoyed their company or not. That's just between us, though, okay? The woman pantomimed zipping her lips, locking them, and then depositing the imaginary key in a wastebasket under her translucent desk. The little display made Kobe realize the young woman likely had acting aspirations, which reminded her why she'd stopped by in the first place. Is Stan in? Oh, yes, of course. The woman rose. Right this way. Kobe followed her through a series of hallways reminiscent of a shiny anthill. She wondered if she should leave breadcrumbs to find her way back. She was sure one of the starving actresses or musicians waiting in the wings would eat them before her meeting finished. Finally, the last hallway dead-ended into a massive set of frosted glass doors, accented in polished chrome. The receptionist pressed a button Kobe couldn't see and whispered, Kobe Galloway to see you. The doors swung open, seemingly of their own volition, and the receptionist motioned for her to go inside, even though she didn't cross the threshold herself. Thanks, Kobe said, hesitating slightly as though she'd been summoned by the great and powerful Oz. Then she remembered she'd called this meeting with her manager, who worked for her. Taking a deep breath, 
she lifted her chin and stepped purposefully inside. Hey, Stan. He smiled at her, holding up one finger and motioning to a cell phone against his ear, and turned to stare out the large windows. I don't care how much money he thinks the project is going to make. That's a problem for the producers. I only care what my client makes, and if there is not another zero on the next contract I get from you, we'll go shopping. She should probably be glad he said things like that. Hell, maybe he'd said it for her benefit. He'd likely said it on her behalf several times in the last ten years, and judging from the view of Times Square from his office, he got the answer he wanted more often than not. That's why she stayed with him, she reminded herself. He knew how to get what he wanted, which was what she wanted. She took a seat in what she assumed was a chair, even though it was made entirely of chrome and angled in a way that kept her feet from touching the ground. Staring down at the script in her lap, she flipped it open and ran her fingers over the title. Vigilant. The words stood in bold print. When she closed her eyes, she could still see it. She'd dreamt about it last night. This was the project she'd waited a decade to be a part of, a project that could make, or rather remake, her career into something she could be proud of. Kobe! Stan's voice boomed from across the room as he tossed his phone onto the desk. What a treat to see you in person. What brings you to the city? I heard my manager works here. He does. Makes the big deals, too. But enough about me. He flashed her a smile, showing teeth too bright not to have been enhanced somehow. Tell me about you. Surely you didn't fly in just to meet with me. You got a hot date? She shook her head. No, I really wanted to talk to you about my next project. Oh, yes, let me see. He tapped his temple, drawing attention to the fact that his dark, wavy hair had grayed considerably at the sides. You just wrapped that last Nick Sparks adaptation, right? Hey, how's Jeremy? He's Jeremy, she said with a sigh. So very Jeremy. Ha, I remember you two canoodling outside my office when you were just kids. She wanted to say she'd never canoodled, not with Jeremy or anyone else, especially in his office, but she needed to stay focused. The time sure does fly, and now you're practically all grown up, both of you. Actually, that's what I'm here to talk about, Kobe cut in. I have grown up, and I'm ready for the roles I take on to reflect my maturity. He stopped abruptly on his stroll down memory lane to look at her seriously for the first time. I was looking over the script for Vigilant last night. His eyes went wide, signaling she had his full attention now. Vigilant is a New York Times bestseller. Where did you get the script? She shook her head, not wanting to go there. She couldn't let the conversation become about her contacts versus his. That doesn't matter as much as the fact that it's drafted and in my hands to negotiate with. Negotiate? He eyed the document like the Pope might look at a crucifix. A full treatment. Script, screenwriter, and female lead. Kobe said in her most businesslike voice, It's a package deal. All or nothing. Nothing is all or nothing, he mumbled and began to pace. 
I heard the author wasn't willing to negotiate, or I'd have beaten down her door myself. Yes, but would you have pitched me for the lead? Uh, well. He smoothed his thumb over his eyebrows. The thing is, this will be a very sought-after role. So, no, then. It's not that I don't think you could handle the acting. He started patronizing, and she gritted her teeth to stay calm long enough to see if he could turn it around. But, since so many people have read the book, they're going to have an image in their heads for the character of Vale. And I don't fit the image. No, but do you know who I spoke to last night? Not a clue. Christopher Columbus, the director, not the explorer. He chuckled at his own joke. She rolled her eyes. I'm sure he's never heard that one before. He's doing Night at the Museum 4, and there's going to be a love interest for the son this time. The son that went to college in the last movie? Yes, that's the one. So I'd play a college student. Exactly, but there'll be a few fun action scenes. She sighed and wiggled her way out of the awkward art chair. I'm 26 years old, and I've never played a character over the age of 19. Okay, well, Jeremy is in talks for one where he plays a city kid who gets offered a job on a dude ranch for the summer. Target audience? She asked drolly, already knowing the answer. Girls, 12 to 18. I'm too old for teen movies, she said flatly. Oh, honey, don't talk about yourself that way. You could easily pass for a high school student. Did you know Olivia Newton-John was 29 when she played the role of Sandy in Greece? You've mentioned it before. But the thing is, I don't want to pass for younger than I am. He opened his mouth, but didn't seem to know how to respond to the comment. Say again? I don't want to be Olivia Newton-John. Don't get me wrong. She killed that role. But I don't want to be America's sweetheart anymore. I don't want to do teen flicks or musicals either, for that matter. But really, you do sing, right? Stan, she said forcefully. I want to do Vigilant. He shook his head slowly. I've got the skills. I've got the build. I'm in great shape. All true. But you don't have the image. The character is dark. Morally ambiguous. A drinker. A fighter. A lesbian shit-kicker. I'm a lesbian shit-kicker. Are you? He asked, his voice a little higher, like someone talking to a puppy or a child. Yes she said emphatically. Look, he cut the patronizing tone. I'm glad you want to branch out, but no one is going to buy you as a lesbian. But I am a lesbian. Oh, I know. I wrote the press release. But this character is actually going to sleep with women, plural, on screen, and you're just not that kind of lesbian. The kind of lesbian who actually sleeps with a lot of women? Exactly, he said, almost triumphantly. Excuse me? She spluttered. I have slept with women. I mean, not in the last few months, but it has happened. Good for you. I have a lesbian niece. And I am a sponsor of the big parade in the village, but... And I mean no offense. To the rest of the world, you're still sixteen. And they love that about you. You're a 
safety gay. Uh, safety gay? Like Ellen DeGeneres or Ellen Page. Really? It's a shame you're not named Ellen. Hey, that reminds me. How do you feel about a sitcom? We need someone to read for the role of Jane Fonda's granddaughter on that Netflix thing. She's a lesbian, right? No. Lily Tomlin is. Really? Since when? Never mind, she's funny. You could be funnier, you know. Thanks. And I don't want to play Jane Fonda's granddaughter. Is there an audition for the role of her lover? Stanley about choked. Was that a joke? If so, it was a funny one. If not, then it wasn't funny. It wasn't supposed to be funny, she practically exploded. I want to be challenged. I want a grown-up career. I want a manager who wants to make me happy. How about a manager who makes you boatloads of money? Then you can buy whatever makes you happy. He didn't get it. At least not the way she wanted him to. She would have really liked for him to jump on board with her. His enthusiastic support would have been a boon to her confidence. But ultimately, she didn't need him to share her vision of herself. She did, however, need him to go to bat for her. So she twisted a silver three-string ring on her right ring finger and played the biggest card left in her hand. Is your wife in the office today? Stanley practically jumped out of his Italian loafers at the comment. What? Mimi, is she working today? I haven't seen her in a long time, and I was wondering what she's up to. She's very busy. Big meeting on the music side today. Do you think she'd make time for me? A muscle in his jaw twitched, suggesting he knew she would. They might love each other dearly, but they also loved the job. They were as competitive with each other as they were with outside agents, maybe more so. She long wondered how that kind of competition could work in a marriage, but she understood that's what made them work as business partners. If it also made Stanley work a little harder for her, great. If not, Mimi certainly would. Can I see that script for a second? Stan came around the front of his desk. I promise I'll give it back. The change in his tone, from polite to purposeful, told her everything she needed in order to hand the document over. He scanned the first page, the line of his eyes indicating he'd stopped on the short background sketch of the lead character. Dark, tall, brooding, magnetic, sexual, powerful, edgy. He read the adjectives aloud. Then he looked up to study her. Your hair is too long. I can cut it. Dye it, too, if need be. Your eyes could be right, especially if you wore some eyeliner. Okay. You've been working with a trainer? Weights and cardio. Double your routine, he said flatly, like yesterday. She nodded. She'd gladly push harder for a shot at the role. He handed her the script and walked around the desk falling into his chair and leaning back so far he stared at the ceiling. How bad do you want this, Kobe? I'll do whatever it takes. Even something you can't undo. She paused, wanting to clarify a little bit, but worried he'd see it as a sign of weakness if she did. Yes. There will be no more teen movies. No more sappy cowgirls or cheerleader roles. Good.
You'll need a complete image overhaul. Six months minimum of your working the press and photo shoots and being seen playing with the big kids. Her stomach turned. I can't just go up for the part? He frowned. I can't pitch this with you as you are. Not if you want a major studio and the budget needed to do this right. I do. I want everything about this project done to perfection. Then you need to make a long-term investment. She nodded. She wanted long-term. She needed it. Tell me what to do. He pushed his palm down his forehead, as if trying to smooth out the wrinkles forming there. Give me twenty-four hours to see what I can come up with. Show up tomorrow. Same time. Same place. Ready to take big steps. I will, Stan. I promise I won't let you down. His smile was faint, showing none of his shark teeth now. I'll see you then. Sensing the need to get out while she was ahead, she backed toward the door. Tomorrow, 11.30, she repeated. But he'd already picked up the phone. She kept backing away down the hall as she heard him telling someone to clear his schedule. She couldn't believe this was happening. Even though the details of what this was were kind of shady. Very shady, actually. Still, it felt big, and she didn't want to do anything to mess up. She took another step backward and stepped on something hard. Ouch, someone said, causing her to jump and bump into a wall, then trip and stumble again. She might have flailed all the way to the floor, if not for two strong hands catching her roughly under her arm and hauling her up. What's the matter with you? A different voice snapped. She teetered a bit, trying simultaneously to right herself and see the people around her. As she planted her feet firmly back on the ground, she realized she was staring at a massive chest, topped off with big shoulders and a sequoia-sized neck. Only when she tilted back farther did she see a strong jaw and deep-set, dark eyes. The African-American man was good-looking enough to be an action star, but the set of his features and his crossed arms and his bulging biceps screamed bodyguard. Sorry, Kobe said flustered. I wasn't watching where I was going. Do you know who you just walked into? Someone behind her asked. She turned to see a much smaller Latino man in maroon skinny jeans and a paisley shirt purse his lips at her. You? He started to roll his eyes, then stopped abruptly and narrowed them. Hey, are you the girl from that one movie with the guy? The one who's got those pecs. Yeah, Kobe didn't need any more description. She was always that girl in that movie. Oh, girl, you look better with the makeup on, he said dramatically. Thanks, she muttered, and tried to edge past him. But the bodyguard shot out his arm. It's fine, Malik, a female voice said from behind him. I don't think she's a threat to anyone. He didn't argue, either out of actual agreement or knowing better than to disagree. He simply lowered his arm and stepped to the side. Kobe's breath caught at the sight of the woman he'd shielded. Honey-blonde hair fell to slender shoulders, framing a pale face. Startling blue eyes flashed amusement from under thick lashes, and painted red lips sparked a heated contrast to the otherwise pastel palette. 
Kobe actually took a step back at the sight of her. Not that she hadn't seen the face a million times, including the billboard towering several stories high just outside. But she'd never stopped to really notice the perfection of its symmetry and precision. It was almost too flawless to be real, and only after too many seconds of being stupefied did she manage to look away. Not that lowering her eyes actually did anything to improve her brain function, because that only left her staring at a low-cut white blouse and a long flowing black skirt with a slit so far up the side even a gentle breeze would reveal anything underneath. Wasn't a wholly unpleasant prospect. Finally, though, when her eyes reached floor level, she noticed a glaring scuff where the heel of her Doc Martens had clearly tread across the toe of patent leather Manolo's. I'm so sorry, she said, snapping her head up. About your toes. The woman's smile was slow. They're fine. Well, your shoes are scuffed and probably expensive, so if, um, you want to bill me, you can send an invoice to Stan's office. They can get it to me. You're going to buy me new shoes? she asked, clearly amused by the offer. I would, Kobe said earnestly. That's adorable, the woman said, with the faintest hint of a southern drawl. Then, with a minimal wave of her hand, she turned and walked away. Kobe stood bewildered, watching her go. Skirt blowing in the breeze she created, entourage trailing dutifully in her wake, she may have even craned her neck a bit as they turned a corner. But when finally left alone in the hallway, all she could manage to think was, So that's Lila Wilder. Who caused the headache? Stan asked, tossing back the satin sheets of his king-size bed. Another fourteen-hour day in the books for each of the levies left them both back where they'd started. His wife sat on the other side of the mattress feet dangling daintily off the edge as she plucked three ibuprofen from the nightstand and washed them down with a swig of single malt scotch. Take a gas, he chuckled and adjusted the waistband of his navy blue silk pajamas. How long is Lila in town? Forever, Mimi groaned, lying back onto the bed so the dent in her feather pillow created a halo around her perfectly coiffed hair. Stan climbed in beside her, taking a moment to enjoy the little luxury of silk sliding against silk. But before he got close enough to kiss her, a muscle caught painfully in his shoulder, and he grimaced. Oh no, did you tweak it again? Mimi asked without glancing his way. Just a little tense today, he said. Who do we have to thank this time? He sighed and stared at the ornate crown molding around the room visually tracing its lines and curves. Kobe. Mimi turned to face him. Not Kobe Galloway. Surprising, right? There really is a first time for everything, Mimi said wistfully. What does she want, a record deal? I only wish. She wants the lead in Vigilant. Mimi made a strangled noise and reached for her phone. Don't bother, Stan said dryly. They aren't casting. She got her hands on an early draft of the script. 
And no, she didn't let me see it. Colby had a script from you? The shock in her voice mirrored his own sense of bewilderment. He hadn't shaken the unease he'd felt during the meeting, even nearly twelve hours later. She didn't hide it so much as refuse to share it. And if you could have seen her, you wouldn't have pushed. He closed his eyes and pictured her as the child she'd been. God, wasn't she just a little kid yesterday? Weren't we all? Mimi murmured. You really are lucky it hasn't happened before now. Probably, Stan admitted. Never known a kid who came up through the business without having a meltdown or a sex tape or a rehab stint or a parental lawsuit. Maybe that's what makes it so shocking. She's always been perfect. Does she have the talent for the part? The thing is, she's always been more talented than her roles allowed. But Vigilant isn't a Disney cruise. It would feel like throwing her to the sharks when I'm not even sure she can swim. She's always been so self-contained, which saved her from the drama and the pain and the backbiting. I thought she wanted to keep her life quiet. I don't want to expose her to something she can't handle. It would reflect badly on me if I staked my reputation on someone who wilted under the bright lights. Reflect badly on you? Mimi laughed lightly. <laughs> She's your baby, you big softy. Don't act like you don't have your favorites. She scoffed. I remain completely neutral in business situations. Sure you do. That's why Lila's been in three times in two weeks. Mimi smiled. Neither of them are kids anymore, are they? Lila's been working for a long time to prove otherwise, he said wearily. And she's done so successfully. Successfully, yes. Gracefully, no. She rolled her eyes. Kobe will go too far in the other direction. Well, she's not going to sleep with every eligible bachelor in Hollywood and a handful of the taken ones. Oh, Lila hasn't been that bad. Mimi's voice grew a touch defensive, once again reminding him there was a soft spot there. Though, that's actually part of the headache. A married man? No, not enough unmarried ones to keep the news cycle churning between album drops. I'm not sure there's a man in the country she could use to shock the paparazzi anymore, he said with a yawn. Even he'd grown bored with the topic of Lila Wilder's love life. It's all gotten a little dog-bites-man these days, when what she really needs is man-bites-dog. Or woman, Mimi said slowly. Dog-bites-woman, he asked sleepily. Right, gender-inclusive language. Woman-bites-dog. Stan, Mimi said, her voice suddenly full of excitement. What, he asked, as she threw off the covers and grabbed her phone from the nightstand. What is it? We're going back to work. He stared at her for a second before sitting up. After forty years of marriage, he'd come to recognize the wild spark of inspiration in her eyes. The fact that she was willing to share it with the likes of him gave him the same thrill he'd experienced when he kissed her the first time all those years ago. Ms. Wilder, it's so nice to see you again. 
Lila noted that sometime in the last two years, her formal title had changed from Miss to Ms. An acknowledgement of her feminism, prestige, or age. She nodded at the receptionist, who rose and led her down a series of hallways she knew quite well. But this time, instead of taking a right out of the central humming hub of the building, they turned left. Philippe raised an already perfectly arched eyebrow at her. She merely lifted one shoulder in response. He'd get her drift. He always had. Malik, on the other hand, straightened both his shoulders, and the large muscles in his neck tightened. He didn't find change as exciting as she did. Or perhaps he did, but in a different way. Which, of course, was one of the many reasons why she kept him on the payroll. The receptionist led them into a conference room that, while not as lushly appointed as Mimi's office, still had plenty to gawk at. From the nickel and leather furnishings to the floor-to-ceiling windows, providing a magnificent view of snow falling softly over the length of Broadway. The levees will be with you shortly, the receptionist said. In the meantime, can I get you anything to drink? Coffee? Tea? Mineral water? Water, cold, no ice, please, Lila said from habit. Latte, Philippe? See, si, Mammy, he said. And coffee black, Malik? He nodded, his eyes still surveying the view as if assessing threats that may lurk forty-two stories above the great white way. Thank you, Lila said. As soon as the door closed, Philippe flopped into one of the high-back leather conference chairs and twirled it around a few times before stopping himself abruptly. Girl, what's happening here? Lila shook her head slowly. She didn't like not knowing, but she wouldn't let it show. I told you. Mimi called me. Like she should, Philippe said. Maybe she's got the goods on a new man for you. I don't need a manager to get me a man, Lila said dryly. I pay her to get me publicity. You haven't needed her to do that for a while either, Philippe said, only a hint of cattiness in his voice. She opened her mouth to snap back at him, but the door opened again, and they all stayed stock still like posed statues. A young man, dressed entirely in black, wheeled in a tray with their beverages and asked if he could get them anything else. Philippe smiled as if he'd just thought of a dirty response. But some side-eye from Malik inspired a little restraint. We're good, for now. The young man ducked out silently. They do have all the help train well around here, Philippe said, rising and passing Lila her water. He then quickly mixed the coffee and latte before handing one of the now indistinguishable drinks to Malik. There are three more glasses, Lila said quietly. Both men glanced at the tray. Malik frowned, but Philippe's brown eyes sparkled. Mimi is one, Lila said, and the receptionist said the levies would be in, so another is for Stan. Oh, and the third is a mystery, Philippe squirmed in his chair. A mystery man. Maybe, though Mimi didn't seem to have anyone in mind yesterday. I know, but maybe it's one of Stan's clients. 
a logical conclusion. But if Mimi had found someone overnight, why hadn't she just said so over the phone? Calling another meeting with both agents felt like overkill. And that said a lot coming from her. Philippe whipped out his cell and said, Siri, Google Stan Levy's client list. Not a bad idea. She didn't like surprises, at least not when they concerned her career. Staying one step ahead of the game allowed her to remain cool, detached, independent, and those things combined to keep her safe. Who could lucky bachelor number 37 be? Philippe asked as he swiped his index finger over the screen. Too old. Too gay. Too much facial hair. Too gay. Oh, could be this one. He held up the screen. She pursed her lips and inspected the image of a movie poster. There was a truck and some rain, and a beefy guy with a woman in his arms. He had her face in his hands, his head angled low, and her chin angled up toward him, as if eager for the kiss he was clearly about to give her. She tried to inspect him a little closer. Big arms, short, fair hair, chiseled jaw. She noted the features in a disjointed array. But between each entry, her eyes flicked to the woman in his arms. Her skin was just as sun-kissed as his, her body every bit as firm, without the bulk. Her eyes and hair were darker, though. Not black. More like the color of the old mahogany upright piano back home. She blinked away, startled by the sentimentality of the thought. He's... She pursed her lips again, trying to find something to say about a man she couldn't seem to focus on. Fine. He is fine. Philippe drew out the word until it had a different meaning from the one she'd intended. And the woman, she finally said. Oh, girl, possessive already? She's just an actress. You don't need to get your claws out for another three to four months. She fought a sigh and waved the screen away. It didn't matter who any of them were. Obviously, she'd rather find someone with a few coherent thoughts in his head and a bit of conversation skill. But she'd worked with all kinds of people, and each one of them brought something to the table. Whatever card she had dealt to her, she'd make it fit into the hand she wanted to play. Or she wouldn't, because she didn't have to take every offer on the table. She'd earned that right, and she had no trouble reminding anyone who forgot. The door to the conference room swung open, and this time the person who entered wasn't an assistant. It wasn't even her agent. It was the woman whom she'd only seconds earlier inspected on a cell phone screen movie ad. Oh, uh, hey, I, I mean hi. She stopped a few steps into the room. Her hair fell past her shoulders, and her skin had grown paler since the photo had been shot. But she couldn't be mistaken for anyone else with those big mocha eyes. You're that girl, Philippe said, snapping his fingers. From the movie with the guy with the arms? Yeah. 
No, from the hallway yesterday, with the tripping and the shoe-wrecking. She blushed an endearing shade of pink. Right. Also true. Sorry to interrupt you again. I was looking for Stan, but I guess I got lost. She stood there a moment, staring at them all, and Lila fought the urge to step in and offer absolution, which would have been fine if not for the fact that she wanted to, badly. The move wouldn't have been magnanimous so much as an opening. To what, she couldn't quite say. And that meant she couldn't quite speak. So, yeah, sorry again. She turned to go. But before she could take two steps, Mimi nearly knocked her over. Toby, darling, baby, come here and give me a hug. Mimi didn't wait for a response, or even a hint of consent, before throwing her arms about the woman's waist. Mimi rocked her back and forth wildly a few times, while Lila looked on, amused, as the blush that had tinted her face seconds before now blossomed to include her neck and ears. Good to see you, too. Unhand her, she's mine! Stan called dramatically, as he entered the room with his usual flash and smile. But Lila wasn't sure if he was talking to his wife about his client or vice versa. He placed a hand on Mimi's shoulder and made a show of prying her off before turning his toothy grin her way. Lila, so lovely to see you. Likewise, she said coolly, her eyes still fixed on the only stranger in the room. And this is Kobe Galloway. Stan threw his arm around Kobe's shoulder and squeezed her so tightly, his large hand wrinkled the plain white dress shirt she wore, quite unfortunately, tucked into gray jeans. We've met, uh, sort of informally and briefly, Kobe said. But you made a real impact, Philippe snickered, and Lila shot him a silencing look. She'd set the tone here, just as soon as she decided what she wanted it to be. Great, Stan enthused. Have a seat, Kobe. We'll all want to be comfortable for this one. Water? She nodded. No ice, please. Philippe's eyebrows shot up, as if the request were a secret code. But this time, he didn't comment. Stan handed her a glass and pulled out a chair for her, opposite Lila. You want me to sit here? He laughed. That's generally what it means when someone pulls out a chair for you. Right. It's just when you said we needed to meet. I thought you meant about work. I did. Stan nodded to the chair, and Kobe's eyes darted around the room once more before she took the seat. I know this is a little unconventional, Mimi closed the door and claimed the chair next to Lila, who noticed none of their usual attendants were present. No staff, no contracts, no Bluetooth earpieces, absolutely no fanfare. Just the owners of the agency and what had to be two of their most lucrative clients. Ladies, as you know, Stan and I are both dedicated to our own client bases. We generally do not share sources or the details of our communications unless there are extenuating circumstances. 
But we're not only each other's biggest competition, we're each other's strongest advocates. That balance is what allows us to succeed in business and in life. Kobe made a face, a sort of polite smile combined with brows knit together at the awkward confusion of being let into someone else's marriage without asking for an invitation. Lila would have laughed at the perfection of the expression, if not for her own confusion. Each of you came to speak with us yesterday with problems we weren't quite sure how to handle, Stan said. And believe you me, Mimi cut in. That's a pretty rare occurrence these days. We're stuck in our ways, and those ways are pretty damn foolproof. Lila didn't mind the boast. She appreciated a woman who knew her worth. And Mimi Levy was worth a great deal. We ended up talking at length about your respective predicaments. I'm not sure I've got a predicament, Kobe said softly. You do, Mimi said, without a hint of malice. A big one, stemming from the fact that your image is completely inconsistent with the direction you want your career to take. And you, Stan said to Lila, are on the opposite end of the monkey bars, my dear. Your career is so in line with every decision you've made, you can't surprise anyone anymore. A muscle in her jaw twitched. But she'd learned to withstand criticism and compliment with the same steely resolve, until she had the chance to act definitively. Thankfully, you have the two best agents in the business, and we spent all of last night hashing out a plan to help you both get what you want, Mimi continued. What you say you want, Stan corrected, to his wife's clear annoyance. They know what they want, Stan. The question is if they want it bad enough to really go after it. Kobe leaned forward. Go after it how? Lila looked down at her candy apple red fingernails. Wrong answer. You need something shocking, something edgy, something trendy and sexy and grown up to shift your image, Stan said, then turned to Lila. And you need something sizzling to recapture the public's attention, only without enough departure from your image to radically change it. And you have about six months before Kobe can pitch a new movie. You would both be in a position to help each other. A movie? Something out of character? Something edgy? Something sexy? Something Kobe would be beholden to Lila for? She liked the sound of that. But she couldn't see what she got out of the deal. So she hangs out with me. We're photographed together at nightclubs. She comes to the shows. We party together backstage. I spruce up her wardrobe. Kobe glanced down at her clothes and frowned. But Lila didn't have time to go there right now. Then we have some big public fights. Twitter snark. I write a song, blah, blah. Bestie breakup, girl fight. Makes her seem like one of the bad girls of Hollywood. Excuse me? Kobe asked. Almost, Mimi said. You missed one small point. Actually, I completely missed the part where I get something out of the deal. Other than a fake friend for a few months. Not a friend. Stan corrected. A girlfriend. Philippe sucked in a deep breath 
and squeaked as he struggled to hold in whatever outburst he had bubbling, allowing silence to reign as both managers stared expectantly from one client to the other. Girlfriend The word rattled around Lila's mind and into her chest. Her heart beat faster with an unwarranted excitement, or maybe trepidation. She recognized the yin and the yang of those emotions, and their place in her creative process, but had a hard time reconciling the mix with the woman across from her now. I'm sorry, what? Kobe finally asked. I'm a little unclear as to what you're suggesting. Of course you are, Mimi said gently. And that's okay. That's why you have me. And me, Stan said drolly. Have you for what? Kobe looked to each of them, then finally across to Lila. What are we talking about here? It's a fomance, Lila said, the exasperation in her voice not at all for show. A fomance. Kobe tried the word again. Fomance. A fake romance. Between me and... you? Exactly. Mimi slapped the table enthusiastically. But why? Lila's eyes went wide. Are you for real? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be offensive. You're very beautiful, obviously, but I don't know you. I'm Lila Wilder. Right. Kobe nodded. I didn't mean I don't know who you are. I've heard your songs, and... Some of them are good. Philippe gasped, and Lila held up a hand. She wasn't offended so much as bemused. No one spoke to her like that. Not anymore. At least not to her face. There was always some pretense, some hint of fear or groveling, or thinly veiled power lust. Kobe's demeanor seemed nothing but earnest. And yet she was an actress clearly a talented one, though her filmography hardly suggested Oscar material. Still, she must be on the brink of something big, or Stan and Mimi wouldn't pull a stunt like this. They saw something in her to pique their finely honed business sense. And that, in turn, caught Lila's curiosity. Only... Kobe didn't seem to understand the magnitude of her own power here. I think what Kobe means, Stan said smoothly, is the two of you bring different things to the table. You don't generally run in the same circles. She's more the Hollywood set, while you're more on the recording side. Actually, Stan, that's not what she said at all. She doesn't see what I can do for her career. To be frank, I don't think she even really understands what you're suggesting here. Mimi put a hand over Lila's. Lila, dear, not everyone is used to your blunt communication style. I'm not sure you meant to sound as dismissive as you did there. No, I did. And I'm okay with that, Kobe said with a nod of respect. Since you seem to have a better handle on the situation, why don't you spell it out for me? Lila rose gracefully to her full height, accented by the three-inch heel of her fashion boots. They're proposing that you and I spend some time together, very publicly, 
without making it clear we're trying to be public. We get closer. We get dashingly romantic. Probably you move in with me. Why don't you move in with me? Don't interrupt right now. The corner of Kobe's mouth curled in a way that made Lila suspect she wasn't completely befuddled. The subtle shift sparked a deeper interest and pulled her closer. She strode slowly around the table. I get the increased press that accompanies the shock of a lesbian relationship. Bisexual, Mimi corrected. You see beauty, not gender. Bisexuality is really hip right now, Stan added. She nodded thoughtfully. I get to double the size of my dating pool. I'm not just a man-eater anymore. We put the whole world on notice. Lila Wilder's within reach. At least, hypothetically. And artistically, it's gold. A softer side and a wilder side. Infinite possibilities. It's raw. It's hot. But also feminine and passionate. A first love all over again. Getting to the heart, not just the surface. Beauty, not gender. Or better yet, beauty, not body parts. Mimi snapped her fingers and grabbed a sheet of paper off the credenza behind her. I like it. I'm writing that down for the press release. Yes. Lila closed her eyes and took a deep breath, letting herself settle into the idea. Artistically, creatively, personally. This warmed her muscles and lifted her lungs. This felt exciting and new and thrilling. Okay, I'm bisexual. What? Kobe laughed, <laughs> just like that. Lila opened her eyes and fixed them on Kobe. Yes. I don't think bisexuality is a choice you can just make for yourself. No one makes choices for me but me, Lila said flatly. Kobe pushed the chair back from the table. What about me? Do I have a choice to make here? You do, Stan said gravely. And once you make it, there's no going back. You need to think seriously about what you're risking. Stan, Mimi warned. I have a responsibility to level with her, Stan said. She doesn't want to be treated like a kid anymore. I'm not going to sugarcoat things. If teenage girls see you having a torrid affair with Lila Wilder, you'll never get another Disney Channel original movie again. You'll never work for the Hallmark Channel again. Jeremy will have his arms around someone else in the next big rom-com. America won't line up to see him woo a lesbian. They have for years, Kobe said dryly, and Lila stifled a snort. But that's fine. I'm done with those projects. I'm a serious actress. I want to be known for my craft and substance. But I'm not sure having a fake romance for the sake of paparazzi moves me closer to my goals. You want a part, right? Lila asked. Yes. A big one. Kobe nodded. You need directors and producers and viewers to believe you can play a character that's so different from every other character you've ever played. But they can't because you've been typecast, correct? Exactly. 
You got typecast in the first place by playing those roles so well. Lila walked right up to Kobe's chair and spun it slowly all the way around, then stopped it so they faced each other. The way to break the mold is by taking a wildly different role. That's what I'm trying to do. No. You're hoping someone will offer you a different role. And that's not how this business works. You have to create your own parts. For the next six months, you need to be a character actress and hone your craft on the most public of stages. I'm kind of a private person. Lila rolled her eyes. Private means passive. When you let someone else define your narrative, you let them define you. I can't control what other people think. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Kobe opened her mouth, but Lila shook her head. They're always going to try to pigeonhole us. You can either pretend that isn't true, or you can create the box you want them to put you in and refuse to fit anywhere else. You're saying for six months I play the part of some playgirl, it-girl, bad-girl, so I eventually get the role of playgirl, it-girl, bad-girl on screen? Precisely. You create a part to show you can play the part. If I get to create my own show, then why cast you opposite me? There were a series of strangled squeaks and gasps behind her. But the boldness of the question and the challenge inherent in it only piqued an interest Lila hadn't felt for a long time. She extended her hand, and when Kobe took it, she pulled her up to standing. Pushing the chair out of the way, she took a slow walk around her, surveying the canvas she had to work with. Then, without comment, she sprang into action. She yanked Kobe's shirt from the waistband of her jeans and popped open the top button to show more chest, stopping short of actual cleavage. Reaching up, she deftly unclasped the clip from her hair, sinking her fingers into thick, silky locks before shaking them out. She found them as soft as they looked without the crust and crack of excessive product. She stood back for a second, surveying the progress before deciding something was missing. She glanced around until her eyes landed on Philippe. She tapped her head and snapped her fingers. His facial expression went from that of a child thrilled to be called on to one who realized he didn't like the answer he'd been asked to give. Still, he pulled the gray stocking cap off his perfectly highlighted hair and handed it to her. Lila shook it out then pulled it snugly over Kobe's head until it drooped at a careless slant. My, you are a cooperative one, she mused aloud. I like that. Now, turn and face the windows with your hands in your pockets. Why? Trust me, I'll make it worth your while. Kobe shrugged, but she was clearly interested enough to comply which was another asset Lila desired in someone she would have to spend a great deal of time with. Once they both faced the plate glass, Kobe jammed her fists into her pockets, and Lila smiled brightly at her reflection before slipping one hand under Kobe's right arm and curling her fingers around the firm biceps 
Then, she used her other hand to take hold of one of Kobe's belt loops and cocked her hip so it angled toward her. With one final touch, she leaned in and whispered, Look at us, before placing a feather-light kiss on her cheek. Kobe's chest rose dramatically as the adorable shade of pink flushed hot under the darker mark left by Lila's lipstick. The phrase, hook, line, and sinker, came to mind as Lila stepped back and marveled at the fact that wooing women didn't seem to require any different skills than wooing men. Any residual concerns she held about her ability to maintain the charade evaporated. Once she'd broken the contact completely, she turned to face their captivated audience. Every set of eyes had gone wide, even Malik's, which served only as confirmation for what she'd already known. They were sitting on top of a gold mine. Can anyone in this room honestly tell me they don't want to see that image on the cover of every magazine in America? I think I speak for all of us when I say that's exactly what we want, Mimi gushed. Everyone? Stan swiveled his chair to look at Kobe, who continued to stare at her reflection, or perhaps past it. She didn't immediately answer him, and Lila's chest tightened, first with anticipation, then with something approaching dread as the silence stretched on. Startled, she realized she wanted Kobe to say yes. Somehow, somewhere underneath the understanding that this little publicity stunt would likely benefit Kobe every bit as much as, if not more than her, Lila wanted her to accept with a fervor disproportionate to the amount of press she stood to gain. It had been a long time since she'd let herself want something from someone else and even longer since someone had made her work for the answer she desired. She didn't like being made to do so now. But even as the resentment bubbled up, so did the suspense. Finally, Kobe turned, her expression blank and her complexion pale. Lila held her breath until the woman before her nodded slowly and said, Okay, I'll do it. A collective sigh of relief whooshed through the room, and Lila hoped the others had been too caught up in the gripping plot unfolding before them to notice her own reaction. Very well, she said curtly. Stan, Mimi, work out the timeline and text it to my personal number. I have a few outfits sent over for Kobe, labeled with when to wear them. Outfits? Kobe blinked as if waking from a trance. We'll have to coordinate somehow. And Lord knows I'm not letting you choose my attire. It'll be best for everyone involved if you just let me do the heavy lifting for a while. Stan clasped Kobe's shoulder. She's right. Kobe hung her head, resignation weighing down her shoulders. I guess wardrobe is the least of my worries for the next six months, isn't it? Philippe's laughter finally got the better of him and Lila didn't even try to rein it in anymore. Instead, she tossed Kobe a practiced smile and said, For that, you get to keep his hat. With a wave of her hand, 
Philippe fell in beside her, and Malik stepped in front as they all moved toward the door in unison. Wait, Kobe called. What do we do now? Lila threw a smile over her shoulder and said, Await my directions, then follow my lead. That's all? She laughed. <laughs> Don't worry, it'll be enough. If you keep your eyes on me, you'll do just fine. Then she walked away. Certain that in spite of minor lapses in judgment, or emotion, over the last half hour, she'd managed to leave on a high note. Thank you for tuning into the special TLR podcast series, where we have been chatting about our favorite rereads. Please make sure to use our buy links for Amazon, or become a patron. Using our buy links gives us a small commission on purchases you make on Amazon within 24 hours of clicking the link. Becoming a patron means you get exclusive content. Go to patreon.com slash thelesbianreview for more.